Welcome to Faith and Freedom Fighters. I'm Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center. And I'm joined once again by my fellow freedom fighter, co-founder and senior counsel, David Yurashami. Now, last week, I discussed briefly an important First Amendment case we have in federal court in Minnesota, and that I'd be arguing on May 12th, which was yesterday, before a three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. I promised that I would give a post-mortem, post-mortem, as it were, of the argument today uh, during today's podcast, and that's where we will begin. And I'd like to note that uh, they do record these oral arguments. Um, this one was done via video conference. I've done quite a few hearings during this COVID-19 uh, pandemic, um, hearings in, in district courts on uh, via video conference, whether it be Zoom or some other platform. Uh, but this is the first time that I did a, 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 a argument before the U.S. Court of Appeals. A little bit, a little bit different. I like the, uh, the dynamic of being in the courtroom behind the podium, you know, facing the three judges. Each of the judges was in their own, you know, private location at behind their desk. In in most cases, um, so you had the three screens. You you have to keep track of the of the timer, and so they had a an image of a of the timer counting down. I'm going to talk a little bit about sort of the background of these uh, oral arguments and things. I know most of our our uh, listeners are not um, are not lawyers, but so anyway, so the the video is not available, but the the audio of the argument, um, which lasted about 30 minutes, each side has uh, 15 minutes, um, is available on the uh, the website for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. But I also posted up a link to the audio on the case page for this case at our, on our website, AmericanFreedomLawCenter.org. Um, you can go to the case page uh, for Ness versus City of Bloomington, that's N-E-S-S. And I also posted it up today on our Facebook page. Um, and Rob, so if you wanna listen to the you, argument, you can do it that way, either one of those. Just so everyone, just so everyone knows, I apologize for interrupting, that you can either go to AmericanFreedomLawCenter.org or the shorthand version, which I like, is AFLC, obviously standing for American Freedom Law Center, .us. So it's a very short and quick access to it. Right. So if you want to listen to, you can actually listen to the oral argument and, and the judge's questions. Um, just so you know, just a little background. So typically, uh, you, you know, you file your federal lawsuit in, in the U.S. District Court. This case arose out of uh, the city of Bloomington, um, Minnesota. So we filed it in the U.S. District Court for Minnesota. Um, we had, you know, briefings, you present evidence and you do all that. You make your record in the district court. Uh, you file typically in the civil side, you file, you know, cross motions for summary judgment or you're responding to a motion to dismiss. And then the judge rules. And if the judge rules in a dispositive way, um, then the, 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 uh, whoever's on the adverse side of the, of the decision of the judgment can then appeal. You get a right to appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals. And in this case, because Minnesota is in the jurisdiction of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit, that's where we, uh, that's where we were. And so we did not prevail in the district court. Wasn't surprised by that. The judge we drew, um, and it's a random drawing, uh, the district judge we drew, my local counsel informed me that there wasn't a chance we were going to prevail in this case in the district court. And so as I tell this, a lot of my clients, you know, you hold your nose in the district court and you get up to the appellate courts because the appellate courts is where the law is, is really made because obviously you have a, a court of appeals decision uh, carries a lot more weight than just a, a district court a district court decision. And, and quite frankly, you look at the, our history, 
uh, most of the very good cases we have in the case law we've developed has all been at the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals um, level. Rob, let me just interrupt if I may. So, yes. So all of our non-lawyers can understand. So in, in the states, all the states have their own court system. So you have the state civil or criminal trial courts, and then you typically have the appellate courts of the state, and then you have the Supreme Court of the state. And in almost all instances, whether if you win or lose at the civil or criminal trial court level, you have the automatic right to appeal to a court of appeals. You typically do not have the automatic right to appeal to the Supreme Court of the state. Now, the same system is paralleled in the federal system. So when Rob speaks about the district courts in the various districts across the United States, these are the trial courts and you have the criminal and the civil cases that appear in the district courts. You have an automatic right to appeal to the court of appeals. And then the only thing above the court of appeals in each of the circuits, the country is divided up into circuits um, and there are 11 circuits plus the um, District of Columbia circuit, which is its own circuit, and the federal circuit, which handles special kind of cases like intellectual property, trademark, patent cases, um, and so forth. And then you have above the circuit courts, the Supreme Court. And so the district courts in any given circuit, the first, the second, the third, the fourth, in this case, the eighth circuit, Cases appealed from the district courts in the Eighth Circuit go to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. And so that's the architecture of the um, cases. We don't automatically have a right in most cases to appeal to the Supreme Court. So really your final adjudication is at the circuit court level. Now there's one interesting twist and, and Rob will come back to it at some point. At the circuit court level, you typically get a right to appeal to a three judge panel. Now, on many of these circuits, depending upon the, the, the population involved, you can have 10, 12, 15 or more circuit court judges. If you lose at the three judge panel level, you have the right to petition for, it's not an automatic right, you have to ask for the right to have the entire circuit court judges come together, 12, 15, 18 judges and rule what's called en banc, all the judges. Now, the rarity of that is like getting the Supreme Court to accept one of your cases. We actually had one that Rob uh, litigated for um, in the Sixth Circuit in which we got a wonderful First Amendment case. Now, the other, in addition to holding your nose, the reason why you really want the opinion to go your way at the circuit court level, even at the three judge, is that it has much more precedential value a district court that rules one way or the other would be adhered to by other district courts in that circuit, but not to district courts outside the circuit necessarily. They might pay attention to it, but they're not going to be have to rule based upon that. And of course, the circuits, none of the circuits have to listen to a district court because it's a lower level. So you want the higher level circuit courts. And of course, if you get an en banc ruling by a circuit court, it has even more powerful precedential weight. And the only thing that has more precedential weight than that is the Supreme Court. So that was my little tutorial there, Rob. <laughs> if you, well, if you followed all that and it, it, uh, it get in the par the systems of parallel, they make a lot of sense. And as David mentioned, I had a, uh, an en banc case that we won in the uh, 
in the Sixth Circuit, and that I argued before a 15-judge panel. And the circuits each have their own rules of who gets to sit, because you have some senior judges who don't often get to sit in the en banc panels. I also argued one previous to that, an en banc in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. So I've had two en banc arguments uh, so far in my 20-plus uh, year legal career, which, I mean, they are a rarity, so um, even to get those opportunities. So by way of a roadmap, um, I'm going to start off and I'll discuss more about this case and the oral argument. And then we'll transition from this case to discuss several interesting current events slash political issues, mostly by way of my colleague. Um, one of those topics involves the current but not so current battle in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas. And aside from being an expert in constitutional law and commercial litigation, David is also an expert on the Middle East. Um, so when we get to that segment, I'll ask him to tell you a bit uh, more about his expertise, his bona fides, as it were, in that, uh, in that particular area. So now I just want to turn to the, uh, the Eighth Circuit argument. So by way of, of background, we represent this, uh, this woman, Sally Ness. Um, she, when we filed the lawsuit, she was 57. That was in 2019. So it was either, depending on when her birthday was, it was 58, 59. Grandmother, right? She lives in this, this uh, rural neighborhood. A residential neighborhood in um, in the city of Bloomington, Minnesota, has a little uh, you know a park that belonged to the neighborhood. Um, well, the Dar al Farouk Mosque um, got a uh, permission to build a mosque in that neighborhood, and uh, and also they also started up a charter school, Success Academy. Charter schools in Minnesota are considered public schools, and this uh, the mosque, and we've seen this in in many other situations. Um, just totally ignored a lot of the, the zoning restrictions and the requirements that were put in place when you have a, you know, a, a facility, a public facility open to the public like this in a residential neighborhood in terms of the you know, parking issues and overuse and, and even starting up the school without actually prior permission. There's a host of zoning issues that was causing disruption in the neighborhood. And the neighbors kind of got together and did a petition to the to the city um, to complain about these uh, issues and it fell on deaf ears and it continued to fall on deaf ears. And, and our client, Sally Ness, would often go to the, the city council meetings and raise all these issues and say, when are you gonna take care of all these zoning violations that's disruptive to our neighborhood? The city went ahead and, and leased, practically gave the city park to the school, which made it almost you know, impossible for our client and her young grandchildren to use when it was constantly being occupied by older you know, school-aged kids running around on the, uh, on the equipment and so forth. So it caused a lot of disruption in the neighborhood. So she was, and when they, it was falling on deaf ears, she decided she was gonna start recording all these violations, taking photographs, videotapes from, from being on the public sidewalk or being on her driveway, never went on the property, never trespassed. It was always passive, passive uh, videotaping of these. And she created a blog and she also had a Facebook page so she could you know, keep neighbors and others informed of what was going on in the, in the neighborhood with this mosque. And, and, you know, again, I, we've seen this before in other situations where these mosques just can run roughshod over the neighborhoods. Um, the, the city's often afraid to enforce their own zoning regulations because if they do, they, they get labeled as Islamophobes. And so everybody backs off and these mosques can do whatever they want. And again, this isn't the first time we've seen this. And so she would record this information and uh, post it up publicly. And obviously the, uh, the mosque and the school didn't like it. And so they, uh, they got the police to show up in August of 2019 uh, while, while Miss Ness was uh, videotaping to 
basically, you know, shoot a warning shot across the bow saying, look, you know, they feel intimidated and threatened by your videotaping. I don't know why everything she videotaped was in plain public view. So she was just recording, uh, you know, via technology of what, uh, of what she was observing and witnessing. And so the, you know, the, the police made a pretty stern warning and said, look, you know, you don't want to be faced with a, a, a charge under the Minnesota harassment statute. I think one of the direct words from the uh, police officer was, you don't want to go down that road, right? It's like the mafia dawn, <laughs> down, you know, given the, uh, given some instructions to the, uh, you know, to an individual. Of course, she doesn't want to be arrested and prosecuted on this harassment uh, statute. And even the police report made it clear that, uh, that individuals at the mosque in the school said they felt threatened and intimidated by this, you know, then 57-year-old grandmother taking uh, photographs from a, from the, the public street and sidewalk. And, uh, and the police report made it clear that the officer said, I, and I asked her to stop videotaping. Well, obviously that has a chilling effect on, on speech, but there's more than that. About uh, a month or so later, she gets visited at her house by two detectives and uh, an official with the county. And uh, they make it clear to her they're investigating her for violations, possible violations of the harassment statute based on her videotaping. And then following that investigation, we found out that they actually forwarded the investigation to the Hennepin County prosecutor for prosecution as a felony offense, because it's a felony if minors are involved at all in the harassment. And obviously there's minors involved um, in terms of filming the overuse of the uh, city park and all the other violations they had going on at the mosque and, and the school. And then to add to that, in October of that year, the city council of the city of Bloomington passed an ordinance that made it unlawful to photograph or videotape a minor in any public park without the consent of the parents. So enough was enough. She contacted us and we filed a, uh, the civil rights lawsuit. As I mentioned, the, uh, the district court ended up ruling against us. And, and so we appealed to the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. There's a couple of twists in, in this. Um, the harassment statute that was being employed in 2019 based on other prior precedent of the Minnesota Supreme Court. And federal courts will even look at state court precedent when they're interpreting their own you know, statutes and laws uh, to determine how it can, you know, how to resolve these issues. The 2019 statute, there were two other provisions of that harassment statute, one uh, stalking by mail and another one stalking by telephone. The provision that we were challenging was a provision that said you can't monitor by technology, right? So that means you, you, know, you can't videotape, you can't photograph or do other things. Those other two provisions were held unconstitutional by the Minnesota Supreme Court um, because there was no uh, intent requirement and there was a negligence mens rea, which means there was only a negligence standard of, uh, of, of conduct or care that the, um, that the potential defendant um, had to violate. And that's often problematic in a criminal in a criminal prosecution. For criminal prosecutions, typically there has to be some specific intent or some, some, some a greater level of intent uh, to be held criminally liable. So those two statutes were struck down and this statute should also have met uh, its same fate, um, but the district court did not do that. And, uh, and then in the interim in, in 2020, they amended the statute. They didn't repeal it. They amended it to just to include an intent to harm requirement and to get rid of the negligence mens rea. So you had to intend to harass and you had to cause um, substantial emotional stress was one of the language they had in the new amended statute. But if you look at what the, how they define substantial emotional distress, it could be simply loss of sleep or a loss of appetite. You know, it just, you don't have to have 
you know, like an, an infliction of an emotional distress at a level where you have to have psychiatrists and doctors and all that. It's a pretty low level threshold. And based on what they alleged she was doing in 2019, in our view, not only did it, did it was it proscribed by the 2019 statute, but it was also prescribed by the 2020 statute. The problem is both those statutes then made her activity criminal and you can't under the constitution, you know, criminalize that which is protected by the first amendment. And certainly that uh, city ordinance where you can't photograph or videotape a minor in a public park, that's a content-based restriction, right? How do you, and how do you determine whether something is content-based, which is, an, you know, which is uh, unlawful in the, uh, under the first amendment, particularly in a traditional public forum. And that ordinance only applied in city parks. So you can't take, you can't photograph or videotape anyone in a public park a minor without the consent of a parent or a, uh, or a legal guardian. If the, if the regulators, the persons who are enforcing the statute has to look at the content of the speech, or in this case, the content of the film to determine whether or not you violated it, then it's content-based. And plainly this is because my client could take pictures of trees, squirrels, and, you know, anything else in the, uh, in the public park and be okay. But if somehow, you know, a minor ran across their photo, you know, she took a picture of a minor in the course of that, then, uh, and then she would be in violation of that. So again, we challenged both of these. We lost in the district court. We appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals to the Eighth Circuit. We have a, a whole host of media organizations uh, filed a, a very good um, uh, amicus curiae brief, which, is, which means a friend of the court uh, brief in this case in, in support of our position. And you know, highlighting, and just by way of background, Hennepin County, if that doesn't sound familiar to you, Hennepin County is where the whole George Floyd incident took place, right? So if there's any county that should understand the importance of uh, permitting private citizens to videotape or video record, you know, matters in public view that are of public interest, then, then plainly that county should, should know that. And we know like, you know, following the George Floyd, all that we saw, all the protests taking place, not just on public streets, but in public parks and everywhere else. And as these, uh, you know, media people pointed out in their brief, Look, any, any journalist, any, if you're trying to, you know, photograph or videotape or, you know, put on television a, uh, you know, a protest that's in a park and they happen to be a minor and then you didn't get permission from the, the minor's uh, parents, then you're, you're in violation of the law. I mean, this thing was so overbroad and in violation of the First Amendment. Uh, I'm fairly confident and quite hopeful that it'll be, uh, that'll be struck down. And then on the harassment statute, it's kind of interesting because the, the issue of them, uh, you know, repealing the, uh, or excuse me, amending the, uh, the statute, whether or not that moots our prior challenge. Our position is it doesn't because number one, um, the 2019 statute has a three-year statute of limitations. So there, we made an argument that she could still be prosecuted under that today. And uh, the, the 2020 version doesn't, doesn't remedy the problems because the same allegations that they made against her in terms of what she was doing um, would violate the 2020 provision as well. And so certainly as applied, um, the statute would, would violate the, um, would violate the first amendment. So we, we argued the case and just, you know, an oral argument um, there's an old saying to you, you know, you don't win or you don't win a case on oral argument. You can only lose it. <laughs> and that's because of the briefing. One thing at the appellate court is they allow, you know, quite a, um, quite robust briefing in terms of how, the length and everything else. Usually in the district court, you're limited oftentimes to, you know, 20, 25 pages and you can, you can barely get in half the arguments that you, that you want to get in. And then you're criticized for, you know, not making a more robust argument. I always love when the, uh, when the district courts do that, they'll deny you an extension for page limit for pages, 
uh, but then they'll criticize you for not writing enough on, uh, on one of the arguments. But in the appellate court, the briefing is pretty robust. The record's already done. Uh, but on argument, they limit you to 15 minutes. And typically as the appellant, the one who goes first, which I went first, you reserve some time for, you know, for rebuttal. So there's a, there's a lot of complicated issues associated with this and to try to get it all done within the, uh, you know, within 15 minutes per side, it's, it's pretty tight. So you try to hit the high points um, and then you're trying to deal and respond with the, the questions from the judges. You know, one of the interesting questions, I, I think from the questioning and you try to read the tea leaves on that, I, I think they're, um, I think that that city ordinance is going to be struck down is, is just my, my reading from the judge's questioning, like they asked the opposing counsel a question. Well, so if a teenager, two teenagers are in the park, could one teenager, you know, take the photograph of another teenager without getting that teenager's parental consent? Would that be a violation of the statute? And after a, a relatively long pause, she had to acknowledge, uh, yes, it does. And it just goes to show you how, how broad the statute was. And one of the other issues, right? So even if the government if it's a content-based restriction, they must satisfy what's known as strict scrutiny, the highest level of scrutiny under the law. Uh, most statutes, a very, very rare case where a statute that restricts free speech will, will survive strict scrutiny. For strict scrutiny, the government must have a compelling interest, right? The interest of the highest order in the statute must be narrowly tailored to promote that interest. If it fails that test, it's, it should be struck down. They admitted in their brief that it only applied in the city park. So for example, if my client took one step out of the city park and stood on the public sidewalk, she could videotape away. But as soon as she took one step inside on the, the public park, it's now all of a sudden a criminal violation. Well, if start, you know, not filming minors is such a compelling interest, it, it leaves that interest totally unprotected. And under you know, the, the case law from the Supreme Court, that's not a compelling interest. It can't be. If you, have, if you allow that, that simple of an exception um, to the restriction and and when you look at how, how over-inclusive this is, you know, the speech that it's going to, uh, that it's going to prohibit, I'm, I'm fairly confident you never know until the opinion comes out. And the Eighth Circuit is, is generally very good. Um, you know, it's not the Ninth Circuit where these liberals come up with their own rules as they go. It's a, it's a relatively conservative circuit. Um, so I, I think that part of the, uh, will prevail ultimately on that, on that part of the, um, of the argument. I think it's still, uh, still, uh, you know, wait to be seen in terms of the decision coming out on, on what they're going to do in the harassment statute. At a minimum, I think they will say, look, the, uh, that, uh, you know, the this, this statute's been amended. Her conduct doesn't fall into any of the proscriptions of that statute. And so there's really no true threat of prosecution. And in some respects, I mean, it would be good to get an order in joining it. But uh, with the court laying that out, that's one of those cases where you, you actually prevail without necessarily prevailing because what you, what's your, you know, my instructions to the client, as soon as you see that from the court, go back and start recording again, right? Because now you've made a court, made it pretty clear in the decision that the, uh, that that conduct is not prescribed by this uh, particular statute. I prefer to have an injunction, but, um, but again, sometimes you can, uh, you can ultimately win the war with, uh, with these cases um, on, in free speech when, uh, when the court makes it clear that they, they can't in, enforce a statute the way that they intend to enforce it. Again, it would be good to get a court order, but I think that um, I think the city ordinance is going to be uh, going to be struck down. I can't imagine that it that it wouldn't be, and that would be one of those instances where if we don't prevail, we certainly would do on banc and and consider going to the U.S. Supreme Court because um, the the implications of having a statute like that um, as the 
all the, as the amici made clear in their brief, all these newscasters really will have a profound effect on the, uh, on the ability to collect information, whether you be a journalist or, or a documentarian or, or you know, even just a private citizen who has an interest in, the, in a public matter. So, um, David, I know you, you, had a, you had a chance to listen to some of, the, uh, some of the argument. I don't know if you have anything you wanted to, uh, to add to that before we move on to our current events. Well, first of all, I'd like to say I thought you did a wonderful job, and you typically do. Um, I did listen to it. I would certainly encourage um, our listeners who have any interest in legal affairs and the process to kind of listen to it and see how it unfolds. Um, it'll be interesting to see how these judges come out, as you point out. Um, even when you think you have a slam dunk win or a slam dunk loss, you can be surprised. Um, and oftentimes the tenor of the questions um, will signal the, the, um, the way the court's going to go, but not always. You and I, um, you know, we've had several cases that I've argued in the um, Second Circuit Court of Appeals. That's the one that governs um, New York uh, and others in that, other districts in that area on the COVID case against uh, uh, Cuomo, the governor of New York and, the, and Mayor de Blasio of New York City. And we had Trump appointed judges that sounded very good and the questioning were very hostile to the, the governor and the mayor. And then either they punted or they ruled against us at the end of the day. And, and that's because again, you have this equation working where ideology and political correctness even impose themselves on the best of judges. And the point I wanted to make in this matter is that are, is really two. One, if this were a church or a synagogue or a Christian school or a or community center or a Jewish one, um, there would have been um, no issue about the fear of the village or the city imposing its zoning ordinances and cracking down. Rob and I have both been involved in litigation uh, where this has been the case um, and where the village and the cities operate irrationally to crack down on Jewish or Christian institutions. But because it's a mosque, even though our client wouldn't know a mosque from a church, as it were, her only concern was the neighborhood and the parking and the taking over of the park itself. Um, but the fact that it was a mosque is why the local authorities simply allowed them to run roughshod and essentially um, partnered with the mosque to send the cops out there and threaten our client. Now, I don't wanna um, avoid the real issues here that underlie the mosque concerns. So for example, the mosque had been subject to vandalism in the past, right? Someone threw a Molotov cocktail at the mosque. And there are instances where, of course, there's far more instances of Jew hatred and attacking Jewish institutions than Muslims, but it does occur and it occurred at this mosque. So if you have someone casing on the public sidewalk or in a public park and, and videotaping, then the mosque officials and the police might be concerned, but there's a way to handle that. In other words, the police could have conducted an investigation. There's no problem under the First Amendment to just go out and investigate to find out what's going on. They would have seen whether it was the grandmother or a, you know, a 
Muslim hater who was actually casing to do harm, the police don't know, but in their investigation, they would have uncovered this, the basic facts. So one is a, how old was our grandmother in this case, Rob? Yeah, 57 at the time in yeah. August. 57 year old grandmother who had a very good explanation and had a public record that her issue was a public issue of public concern, not anti-ism, not, not violence or anything else. Whereas if the police had investigated some 25 year old um, guy who'd been in trouble or who had violent ha Facebook pages, they could have investigated. And then still within the context of the first amendment because the, the criminal caser, the guy who's out there casing the place to see when he's going to attack the mosque, um, it still has a first amendment right to be out there and do that unless he's doing something in concert with that that creates a criminal act. That in of itself is still legal, but the police have ways to, to handle that. They can surveil him publicly. Um, uh, they can, if there's enough evidence on his Facebook page, they might go to a judge and try to get a, a warrant for his computers or something else, his communications, whether that would be probable cause or not. But the police still have ways to conduct their investigation and protect the mosque without violating our client's First Amendment rights. But once they found out enough facts, what they should have done is simply told the mosque officials, we're not going to go out and threaten this woman for violating the law. Um, we might conduct an interview and tell her that, you know, her conduct is not criminal, but we're just conducting an investigation and, and asked to speak to her. And if she wanted to speak to them, she could have. If she refused, she could have done that as well. Um, and properly so. So there are ways to handle the threat that the mosque officials felt without violating the First Amendment. You don't operate with a club when a more precise instrument is available to you. No, exactly. You know, and, and again, when you just look at the evidence, all the videotape and, and things she did, she presented them to the city council. She posted them up on Facebook. She put them on her blog, right? These weren't even, you know, done clandestinely or surreptitiously in any, any particular way. And she lived in the neighborhood, you know, her house was right there in the, in the neighborhood. So yeah, all those factors, it was, it was, this was just a club. And Oh, by the way, I've got to add this one other important point. Um, the attorney general for Minnesota intervened in the case um, and uh, was, Pretty, uh, pretty clear in his position that this statute prohibited what he described as harassing videotaping, specifically in the context of our client. So he intervened against us in this case. And, and the Attorney General of Minnesota is, is Keith Ellison, the uh, left-wing uh, Muslim who, uh, who was in uh, Congress, but now he's, uh, he's the Attorney General for Minnesota. Um, now let's, so let's, let's, yeah, let's pause here on that note. I was actually going to raise that. So that's to me, that's key from a public policy perspective and from American Freedom Law Center's perspective, we represented our client pro bono. This was a, a, a matter of public concern. Um, and so it fits our mission statement. And the fact that Attorney General Keith Ellison, now remember Keith Ellison was and is, Keith Ellison is not just a liberal. Keith Ellison, an African-American Muslim, promoted the fact that he was the first African-American Muslim um, uh, elected to Congress, but um, he also served as the head of the Democratic Caucus or some party, very hardcore ideological position. 
Um, he is, and he's strongly supportive of the Council on American Islamic Relations, a Hamas Muslim Brotherhood front group um, operating in the, in the United States out of Washington, D.C., with chapters across the country, um, a very bad and evil organization. Um, Keith Ellison is a hardcore progressive, and he was elected to attorney general under that mandate. Um, and uh, his intervention in this case is mind-boggling because you now have the highest law enforcement officer literally blind to the First Amendment, that he could take the position that these statutes do not, and their application to our client, the statutes facially, meaning just as they're written, and as they were applied to our client, are not violations of the First Amendment, is obscene, literally so. And if this case is not reversed and we do not win, Keith Ellison has a blank check, carte blanche, to simply run roughshod over the First Amendment for anyone who speaks out publicly against Islam, the mosque, the, the Black Lives Matter. Um, it will not be good for the Constitution and the citizens of Minnesota. All right. Well, on that uh, on that sobering note, let's let's talk about some current events. Uh, and the first story that I, I want you to discuss, David, in conjunction with, if you could take a minute to discuss your Middle East expertise, is the Hamas shooting war that's uh, currently going on in Israel. So there's a lot to be said here, and I'm going to address this at a very high altitude. Maybe we'll have a podcast on the whole Middle East issue, um, the Israelis versus the Palestinians. Um, but just to provide some context for my bona fides, um, in addition to my undergraduate degree in public policy work, um, I was for several decades in the 1980s and 1990s, the um, senior counsel and then general counsel and head of um, uh, legal policy studies for the Institute of Advanced Strategic and Political Studies, which was a leading um, national security think tank operating out of Washington, D.C. and Jerusalem during that period, headed and founded and headed by Professor Robert Lohenberg, God rest his soul, who was my political philosophy mentor and a brilliant man, um, recently passed. And with his passing, the Institute um, ended its existence after um, 30 plus years, uh, and it had published very important work. And in that context, um, I applied my expertise in national security law, public interest law, public policies, to the question of, the, um, of Israel's existence and its battle with the Arab countries around it and so forth. And um, that therein lies my interest and my expertise. And I was in that position for, as I say, approximately two decades. Um, what you're going to hear in the media about the Hamas-Israel rocket war that's taking place now is from the left that this, I mean, generally they'll talk about it being the occupation, but they're saying that the precipitating events were the eviction of these poor Palestinians who had lived in the old city of neighborhood, a specific neighborhood in Jerusalem, and they were being evicted. Um, 
And of course, there it's now toward the end of Ramadan. And during that whole month, and especially toward the end, um, there was rebel rabble rousing, rousing by the imams on Al-Aqsa Mosque, and there was protests and so forth. The police had to go in and, and, and the security forces and deal with that because oftentimes what happens, the Al-Aqsa Mosque sits on the mount above the um, uh, Western wall of the Holy Temple where Jews pray. And they throw rocks and other ops, you know, uh, bottles and what have you to try to injure Israelis down below. Um, and so um, the media and the left is now articulating this rocket attack by Hamas as in protection of these Palestinians who were being evicted and the protesters who were being um, um, confronted by the Israeli security forces on Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Mount, the Holy Mount, uh, where the Holy Temple was built uh, for the Jews. Um, that could not be further from the truth. Um, the Israeli government is not evicting anyone. This was a real estate dispute. And listen how history is corrupted by the left and by the Palestinians. When the Ottoman Empire existed prior to the creation of the state of Israel in 1948 and controlled what was called the Palestine Mandate, which included Israel and Jordan, Jews lived from for hundreds of years in the holy cities. They lived in Jerusalem, they lived in um, Tzfat, and they lived in Hebron, Hebron we say in Hebrew. And um, uh, they had lived there with the Arabs who lived in the same cities relatively peacefully, although there were constant pogroms, attacks against the Jews, including in Jerusalem, where the Arabs would rise up and just slaughter Jews um, at will. And when the um, Ottoman Empire uh, essentially was kicked out in World War I, and the Palestine Mandate by the Brits was established, and then Israel was created, as we all know, the Arab countries went to war in 1948. They started the war and essentially chased all the Jews out of the old city. They would not allow Jews to live there, and it was taken over ultimately by Jordan. And during that time, Jordan allowed these Palestinian families to Arab families to move into Jewish homes and Jewish property. Now, they had told them and they were going to transfer title, but they never did. And so these usurpers, these Palestinians who had taken over Jewish land without any kind of due process of payment, um, claiming, well, we won the war, at least we won this part of the war, and we're going to take your land. Well, after 1967, the Six-Day War, when Israel got the land back, um, ultimately, these Jewish families came into court and said, these people took our land. And this has been going on for decades, this legal battle. But ultimately, the courts ruled that the Israeli organizations or groups that had title to that land before, during the Ottoman period, that they had good title. And, but they established that the Palestinian families, in most cases, were legal tenants. 
and it's a matter of international and Israeli law. And as long as they paid rent, well, eventually the Palestinian families either stopped paying rent or started making changes to the properties, which violated the terms of their tenancy. And the Israeli organizations and groups went back to court and sought their eviction. And that's what this case is all about. Now, it's now sitting at the Supreme Court of the State of Israel, and we're waiting for their decision. And the Supreme Court of Israel is a very political entity. Um, so, uh, you know, they, they, their case law can be all over the place based upon what they perceive to be the national security interests of the State of Israel, i.e. threats from Muslims or threats from... So the war now taking place has nothing to do with the state of Israel evicting. This is a private land dispute in which the Israelis have the better argument. Now, the other point to be made on this, and I'll reduce this down, is that um, this rocket war that's taking place, um, the way it's being crafted in the media and by the left is of course to always talk about, oh, there's only a few Israelis dying by these missiles. And there's far more um, multiples of Palestinians, including women and children. Um, in the past, and these wars, these fighting wars between Hamas, every time Hamas needs to um, kind of raise the public awareness of their battle against Israel, they go to war. Um, and they expect to lose citizens. That's why they put their rockets in and around hospitals and apartment buildings. Now, in previous wars, Israel sent in their jets and did targeted bombing, but also sent in soldiers. And they would literally leaflet the citizens and ask them to leave the buildings before they went in. The problem with that is a lot of Israeli soldiers died because you're talking about the most dangerous kind of urban warfare, guerrilla warfare. And because the, the um, terms of engagement were such that Israeli soldiers had to put their lives at risk so that they wouldn't harm Palestinian citizens. Palestinian citizens still got killed or wounded, but more importantly, Israeli soldiers were either killed, wounded, or captured as a result. And that, of course, then led to um, all the issues of uh, Palestinians offering um, one Israeli soldier or even a body if Israel would release a hundred um, terrorists from their prisons. And typically Israel did do that, in my mind, um, not wisely, because it just promotes more of that. Israel seems to have gotten wiser. And so now they're using drones and, and, and missile attacks of their own to go after the high target high-end targets and the leading Hamas um, military people. The result of that is Palestinian citizens, women and children do get killed, but that's not the fault of Israel. And the fact that Israel would use the safer approach to protect its citizens and its soldiers is absolutely not only reasonable, but mandated for a country um, in my mind. Um, the Palestinians have started this war. Now, the argument by um, many so-called centrists is, um, okay, so Israel has a right to protect itself um, and to secure its citizens' safety, but it shouldn't be so indiscriminate. And because it's so much more powerful than Hamas, um, 
it shouldn't be using such firepower to kill women and children. You simply cannot use any firepower against the Hamas targets without the risk of killing Palestinian civilians, precisely because their arsenals are in and around civilian institutions and buildings. And this, the only way to go after them is this way. And so it is, an, it is simply counterfactual to say that Israel can protect its citizens, but it shouldn't be harming Palestinian citizens. The fact is, the Palestinian citizens are ruled by their government. They live and know they live among rockets. That's too bad if you're a perfectly innocent citizen of Gaza. It's too bad. I feel bad for you. But I don't feel as bad for you as I do for an Israeli citizen or an Israeli soldier whose life is at risk, life or limb, because your government, Hamas, your government, Gazan citizen, is committing war and terrorism and putting your life at risk. That's on you and your government, not on the Israelis. Very good. You know, the, a great explanation. You know, we also had in the news, and there's, there's somewhat, I believe, a connection between these two, this cyber hacking of the colonial pipeline. Right? Could you uh, give our listeners and, and viewers a little uh, thumbnail sketch on that and, and discuss um, or how or what you think there might be a connection between that even in the Hamas attacks? Well, the Colonial Pipeline is also interesting, that hack. Everyone should know about it, of course. Um, hackers that um, we are pretty confident um, are in Russia, uh, may or may not be part of the Russian you know, military clandestine services or working hand in hand with them. Um, the evidence is not clear. Um, hacked into uh, the Colonial Pipeline computer system and brought it to a halt. Now, news came out today by one source at least that um, Colonial Pipeline paid four to five million dollars ultimately to these hackers. Um, there have been other attacks on our infrastructure system and um, I serve as general counsel to the Center for Security Policy, a national security think tank in Washington DC. And um, the Center for Security Policy has been doing work for decades on the threat to our infrastructure from either electromagnetic pulse bombs or in this case, computer hacking, which is even a more insidious threat because it can be conducted far more um, clandestinely um, with far less fingerprints. And um, the fact is, is that, um, and software that's across government computer systems called SolarWinds was hacked um, apparently also by Russian actors and more closely aligned with the military and intelligence services there. The Chinese government has hacked into very effectively the Microsoft network. Um, so we've seen these intrusions before. We just haven't seen a government institution or an infrastructure brought to its knees. It happens all the time. And by the way, it always happens on an ongoing basis to um, private companies, big Fortune 500 companies, and they tend to pay these hackers ransom money 
because it's cheaper to pay five, 10, 20, 30 million dollars and get your system back online than it is to try to fix the problem where you might not be able to find it for a while. And even then you're never sure that you got to all of the problem. It's interesting that the, you know, it's very easy to hack into a government um, computer system or to an infrastructure. Um, there's the obvious way of just sending emails to the people in the system and using, you know, phishing expeditions as they're called, where you pretend like you're from some other source, it's spoofed and the person clicks on an attachment or opens up something. And then once it's in the system, they have all the back doors, the front doors, they can get into the system and then just plant Trojan horses to come alive at any time they want. The way it apparently happened at Colonial Power is through what's called a supply side hack, which is any kind of infrastructure system or even the government, of course, deals with third party suppliers into their system. So Colonial Power, which is one of the largest- yeah, Colonial Pipeline, right? Is it yeah. It's a pipeline system throughout the Northeast and Southeast. It runs up and down the Eastern seaboard of the United States. It's critically important infrastructure. Um, as we've seen with the run on the gas and of course the, the lines and the shortages. Now, um, they deal with many subcontractors in providing for their system, their computer systems and what have you. And so if, the hackers can find a weak supplies vendor and get into their system. From there, they get into Colonial Power. Now, there's ways to deal with that. There's an Israeli company, for example, that um, operates on the principle that water never flows uphill. And so what they do is, is build systems where the information can only flow downstream. And so no information can come up unless it goes through a very, very uh, intensive security check. In the same way, when you protect your physical power plant, you put security guards and what have you. And the only people that can come in have to be um, highly um, uh, credible security checked individuals. Um, but putting that aside, the question is, and by the way, the, the narrative now is that these hackers, these Russian hackers were only in it for money. Uh, but that's not necessarily true. The organization itself came out with a statement in the, you know, the deep dark web that said, you know, this wasn't us. We actually lease our hacking software to other bad actors and, and we make money by leasing it. Now, we have no idea what the intent was. If that's true, we don't know it's true. That's what they've said, but it's reasonable to assume it's true. And we have no idea who leased it. It could have been Chinese government actors. It could have been um, Russian government actors. It could have been US actors. We don't know who leased their software if in fact that's what happened. So to talk about motive is silly here. What we do see is Hamas, which was quiet during the Trump administration. President Trump made it absolutely clear, the US stands with Israel. They cut off funding to Palestinian uh, entities. Um, they put their feet to the fire and there was a standoff. Palestine and you know the Palestinian authorities um, weren't going to 
um, embrace the Trump administration's position in favor of Israel. So they held their ground. And what happened? President Trump with Israel went to all of the uh, Muslim Gulf countries and others and worked treaties and deals with them to where they embraced their private relationship with Israel publicly, because many of these Arab countries dealt with Israel because they know the greatest threat to the Middle East is Iran. The Obama administration didn't know that. That's why they entered into the nuclear deal and paid them billions of dollars and eliminated many of the sanctions. President Trump imposed those sanctions, embraced these Arab Gulf states that understood Iran as the threat and created public relationships with Israel. Huge news. Of course, the media didn't cover that. Um, but Hamas was absolutely quiet when it came to Israel because they knew that President Trump would give Israel a green light to defend itself. As soon as Biden is elected and he reaches out to Iran and he, everyone understands who's in his administration, pro-Palestinians, um, uh, anti-Netanyahu types, and Hamas immediately tests Biden. These hackers from Russia, again, because Biden is perceived as weak, this was the first public case that we've seen where these hackers have attacked an infrastructure, a major infrastructure element in, um, and brought it to its knees, presumably for money, but obviously for other reasons. They're testing the Biden administration. I will just add to that context. And by the way, Larry Kudlow made this point um, very well. Um, and it's in the news now where he made the point that um, it didn't take long for international bad actors to start testing the Biden administration because the one thing that the Trump administration was absolutely clear on was that he was going to protect US national security interest with every bit of American military and um, IT power that it has. And it was going to stand with Israel 100%. Once you eliminate that kind of very clear stance by a man that people didn't want to challenge, um, you've opened the floodgates. And that's what President Biden has done. So that's the situation we're in. And by the way, um, the Center for Security Policy made the point, and I started with this, I'll end with this. You want to talk about COVID? You want to talk about U.S. deaths or global deaths? That's all well and good. And it's a, clearly a compelling state interest and even a national security interest. But I will tell you, it pales in comparison to a serious hack of U.S. infrastructure on the computer systems because our computer systems are woefully inadequate when it comes to security. They're, they're legacy systems patched upon legacy systems. There's no real integration. There's no systemic protection of our secure, security um, uh, apparatuses in the intellectual property, in the intellectual technology um, area, IT area. And um, if hackers were to seriously attack our power infrastructure, our computer infrastructures, 
they would wreak absolute havoc and you would have tens of millions of deaths literally in a matter of a week to 10 days because you would have rioting, you would have blackouts, you would have the inability to respond to um, fires, to crisis, hospitals would go down. This is a major national security risk that all administrations have effectively ignored because the cost of dealing with it is so high. And it is the same thing that we did with, with these global viruses for so many years. S essentially put our heads in the sand and uh, avoid them because they're just too mind boggling to consider. Well, that's uh, all fascinating stuff. I, I, uh, I think we might uh, wrap it up on that one. You gave us a lot to, to think about and to, and to chew on there, certainly. Um, these, uh, you know, these, these are dangerous times. We've got both within and without, right? So we have all these progressive left-wing liberals who, who dismiss, um, you know, they want this, this sort of globalism and so everybody's, you know, kind of sitting around singing kumbaya and we, we reduce our, our defenses. We reduce, we, you know, minimize our enemies. We, and we, we also, you know, push our, our friends aside like Israel and the, in the Middle East and, and what's going to happen. I mean, there's, you've got so much going on in the, in, inside the United States where there's problems, obviously that these liberals are doing, but then also now we have these external threats that are starting to, uh, to crop up. So, a uh, lot to lot to think about, and and uh, you know, a lot to uh, lot to pray about, quite honestly. But you know, we got to keep up the fight. That's just the way. That's the way it is. There's no, we don't have any options. This is a this is the history we get we get placed in, and and uh, we're going to do our best. So, let uh, again. That's I think that's fortunately that's all the time we have today. I think we've gone on for a little bit over an hour. We obviously look forward to our next discussion. Um, we thank all of you, all our listeners and viewers, for joining us. As you know, our video casts are posted on our Rumble and YouTube channels, and our, po our podcasts are posted on Spotify and Stitcher. If you like the content, again, please follow us and please spread the word. And uh, thank you all again. And as always, may God bless you, and may he continue to bless America. Amen.